walk, believe, or walk. Daniel, walk, believe, or walk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am, with undying commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend and listener and viewer, you find these conversations enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this channel. Bestow upon this episode an invaluable like, share it with family and friends, and join the conversation. My distinguished guest today, whose brain I'm very eager to pick, is John Eisenberg. John is the author of 11 books. Included in his remarkable oeuvre are The League, the first season, both of which chronicle the NFL in its infancy, The Streak, and most recently, Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football, of which I have my copy and of which I encourage you all to get your own. Prior to his career as an author, John was an award-winning columnist for the Dallas Times-Herald, of which since his childhood, he was an avid reader, and the Baltimore Sun. He's covered just about every major sporting event including the Olympics, the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, the Masters, the Kentucky Derby, just about all of them. John, it's an absolute honor to be able to talk with you today. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to it. So let's jump right into it. For the theme of your latest book, Rocket Men, you selected two topics about which everyone holds very strong opinions, race and sports. Why did you decide to tackle, if you'll excuse the term, these two ticklish subjects? What was your inspiration for writing this book? Well, for better or worse, sports has been my lane uh, for a long time. And so that, that comes very naturally. Uh, you know, that's the vast majority of stuff I've written is sports. So uh, it's what I know. It's what I do. It's where my real understanding of history goes. And as far as the, the racial aspect of it, um, you know, I was a public facing columnist for many years with the Baltimore Sun and um, uh, nothing ever. Fa I, I mean, my years go back to before uh, the Internet, you know, when uh, when you wrote something and people couldn't just tag a little comment down on the bottom. They wrote you letters, you know, if they didn't like it. And so, uh, as you said, I've gone to many events and I would, you know, one in particular, I come back from the 1988 Winter Olympics. OK, in Calgary in Canada, and I'd written numerous columns about uh, Debbie Thomas, who was a, a figure skater, a black figure skater, tremendous athlete, uh, uh, you know, sharp person, just a great interview. And so uh, I was shocked at the things that, you know, you come back home from there and you get these letters in your box from people that are just just odious, you know, hate-filled racial letters. And so, uh, you know, I'm a pretty young guy at that point in terms of uh, being a columnist, and it's just shocking to me to see the the sort of the the level of antipathy and and so that that opened my eyes to the fact that this this is an aspect of sports that uh, I just can't turn my back on and should never turn my back on and so for many many years following that from both my columns and my books there's always been 
uh, a racial thread. You can't miss it if you spend as much time around it as I do. It's an important aspect of sports as it's, uh, you know, a critical aspect of the world we live in. And so it just seemed a natural to me. This is a big canvas. Uh, the story of quarterbacks, you know, a famous position in sports, probably the most glamorous position in all of sports. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a story that as a sports writer for many years, I sort of missed. I think I sort of missed it uh, as as uh, seeing well, following football as much as I did and failing to understand how few black quarterbacks there were and how much of a pioneer the guys were that I followed in the 1980s. So it just seemed, you know, this is my chance to to sort of right the wrong. And this is something that happened in pro football. There was a, uh, you know, a racist ideology that didn't let uh, black uh, players on the field at the quarterback position. And I wanted to tell the story, shine a line on it and let people understand this is something that happened. I think it's fascinating uh, that you had this experience in Canada in the 1980s, the late 1980s. As I read your book, uh, I'm made aware of the fact that it was to Canada that many black quarterbacks went in search of an opportunity to play professional football when they were prohibited from doing so in America, in the NFL. Maybe you can comment just briefly on that. It's sort of strange that, or if not strange, a little bit interesting that in this country where many black quarterbacks were more welcomed to play and to contribute to their professional teams into that league, uh, you also first really encountered this uh, openly vitriolic racial uh, response to this excellent ice skater. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but uh, you're right. Uh, it was uh, certainly an experience that really had an impact on me, the, the Canadian aspect. And of course, uh, you know, the, the Olympics up there were a very interesting experience and I enjoyed it. It's when I got home back to America that uh, I sort of realized what uh, what was going. I didn't realize, man, you know, I, I long understood what was going on with race in this country. Uh, but, uh, you know, to get it just shoved right in your face like that was was really something. No surprise, really, to anyone, though, who's written, uh, you know, public facing. You, you, you put something out into the public realm. You never know what sort of response you're going to get. You learn that very quickly. Yeah. And so. Uh, so anyway, but yes, uh, Canada is a place. There's a real Canadian thread in, in this book, Rocket Men, because it, it, it is a place where um, the, the football teams there in Canadian football, very different than American football, but it is, uh, you know, essentially the same sport. And the franchises there, professional franchises, just never really saw color at that position. Uh, they they were right away from the 60s to 70s more than happy to put black players at that position. So all this ideology that was uh, baked into the sport in the United States, you know, is a black quarterback smart enough to play the position in the pros? Uh, can't are they? Uh, is he enough of a leader? Uh, uh, will white teammates follow him? Will he work hard? just one after the other, just sort of, uh, just really odious sort of uh, uh, thoughts, uh, groupthink really that was there. And so it just didn't exist in Canada. So uh, it, it is very interesting. Uh, it, it, several reviewers have said to uh, about my book that it really shines a light on uh, sort of the broader scope of race relations in the United States. And I take that as, as praise, 
but it's unfortunate uh, that that is the case, obviously. But I do think there's some truth to it. Yeah, and it's something upon which you need to shine a light, uh, whether in the domain of sports or in uh, American culture writ large. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I interviewed your former colleague at the Baltimore Sun, Scott Shane, about his work regarding the Underground Railroad and its conception and development throughout the course of the years. And again, Canada plays a prominent and heroic role in that story. Many of the enslaved Blacks living in and around Baltimore and certainly south of Baltimore were quietly, uh, <laughs> furtively transported up north to Canada. So in that way, I think your book, Rocket Men, unintentionally is a little bit of a microcosm of, of the, the broader story about um, being Black in America throughout the ages. Maybe you can comment on that. This is very much a story about being black in America. Uh, it, it is, uh, I interviewed Marlon Briscoe uh, before he passed away, uh, was really the first modern pro black quarterback. In the late 1960s, he got into five games, started five games for the Denver Broncos one year, simply because they'd run out, all the white quarterbacks were injured, they had no choice. So they put him in. And so uh, I interviewed him and, and uh, he, he actually played, performed very well on a losing team and was rewarded by being told you would never play quarterback again. The sport turned his back on him as a quarterback and he pivoted and f had a career. He went and played wide receiver and wound up on some Super Bowl winning teams and, uh, you know, had a had a great, had a very, very uh, solid career, uh, you know, but but, uh, you know, he. Uh, is a guy that told me when I interviewed him, I said, you know, were you bitter uh, about the fact that you could have been a great quarterback? And he said, no, I wasn't bitter. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And I'm a black man that grew up in the United States in the 50s and 60s. We're, you know, we're used to that. You know, things were not going to be fair. Doors were going to be closed. Uh, sad, but true. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's why uh, there was a civil rights movement you know, uh, really at the fundamental core. And, and so, yes, it's very much a story. I mean, with that comment, I, I was, it's so sad, but it's true. You know, when he said, I was, we're used to that, you know, it wasn't going to be fair. So what does that tell you? Really a profound, simple statement uh, from a guy, he happens to be a football player, but uh, it, uh, you know, it definitely uh, works in, in, in all, all other aspects of American society. So, you know, football is showing the way right there. Yeah, while it's unfortunate that he was the victim of this, uh, of this society's perception of black men and, and the sports perception of black quarterbacks specifically, there's also something uh, kind of stoic and laudable in that sort of response, just a kind of a, like a tough chin. He, he says, you know, this is the way it is. And I just have to persevere the best that I can. I have to endure. Um, now, I'm sure he had moments of, of great irritation at the fact that it was before him. But there, there's something remarkable in that sort of a response. Uh, now, in your popular book, uh, which, to which I uh, recommend all my listeners uh, go and, and read, uh, The League, you chronicle the NFL from its infancy. In Rocket Men, you do something similar, but through a lens whose focus is on the racially motivated policies to which teams subscribed, uh, and of which innumerable talented black quarterbacks were sadly the victims. So uh, many listeners are 
and especially younger listeners, are unfamiliar with what the NFL was like at its beginning. Uh, tell us in brief, what was it like back then? Well, the NFL, and it's the reason I wrote the league, uh, was it, it bore no resemblance to the, to the sport we, we know today. Uh, it was not popular. It was not successful. It was really, honestly, not very interesting. Uh, it was had a lot, and it barely was uh, alive. It barely survived from year to year. Uh, it, it, it went through the Depression. Uh, you know, it, it went through World War II, trying hard not to collapse and just die. And so there were many, many teams in the 1920s that folded. Uh, franchises came and went. Players jumped from team to team. It was a mess. Okay, and there were uh, several, a handful of owners. In my book, The League, what I focus on is five owners, and there were others who foundational owners really who took this failing enterprise really by its its lapels, dragged it through this difficult time, and made decisions that set it up to succeed later. Succeed so wildly, but it, it was. It was just was not uh, college football was far more popular than pro football. I think high school football was far more popular than pro football. It was considered American society looked at football as a, as a as a training ground for young men. Let's take our boys and turn them into men. All right. The idea, you know, put them out there on the field, let them hit and get hit and let, let's make men out of them. The idea of paying people to do that was was considered awful. That would just be, before the NFL could, could succeed, it had to clear that hurdle, that people thought it was actually okay to pay someone to play football and to learn to become a man. And so it's amazing, this is a century ago, but that was the societal perception of football. And so the pros finally began to get a little foothold uh, and it, key things had to happen. The game itself, was really just basically a muddle of handoffs into the line and you couldn't tell who was playing on what team. You couldn't see the ball. There was very little passing. And so the legalization of the forward pass in 1933 changed everything. And it made it a far more interesting sport. And they started throwing the ball and the scores went up and it got to be, and, and that's where the quarterback position became so glamorous. And so really that's what, what brought the NFL out of its dark era. Uh, and of course, from a racial perspective, from 1933 to 1945, there were no black players. Uh, the league was, nothing was written obviously, but it was just, uh, it was an all white sport. And so that, had, that hurdle had to be overcome as well. Yeah, and again, for anyone around the age of 25 or younger. I mean, this, or even maybe a little bit older, this is unimaginable to think that there was no forward passing, that there were no <laughs> black players, um, that it was basically trying to push forward a couple of yards, a couple of yards and turning the ball over via a punt just about every couple minutes. So it was a very slow, <laughs> um, I don't know, lugubrious game. You know, there wasn't the excitement that we see today. Uh, you know, spread out offenses and deep passes and action at every turn. Uh, and I, I was reminded when you were talking about this, sort of in the early 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt was the president and he was instrumental in kind of saving football from itself. I think his son was injured in a, in a football game, a collegiate football game. And he 
got together, I, probably some of the athletic directors at the prominent schools of that age, and basically gave them an ultimatum, either to change the sport or to watch it collapse under the weight of a, an executive order. <laughs> and they did change the sport. But it also goes to show the fact that you know, college football was immensely popular prior to the to the advent and then the rise of of professional football, and some might even argue it's still a little bit more popular. I don't know about the viewing statistics, but uh, you know, a lot of people to whom I speak will say that they much prefer a, a good college football rivalry to uh, you know any regular season NFL game. Uh, so I always find that to be pretty interesting. Uh, so I want to shift just a little bit more to the to the racial aspect, and we'll get back to the sports. Uh, now, since the publication of the New York Times' 1619 project, the term systemic racism has gained currency. It's no longer a purely academic term, but one with which the lips of everyday Americans are acquainted. Uh, in your book, you say that racially motivated practices are baked into the sport. Are we to understand you to mean that the NFL is systemically racist, both yesteryear and today? Well, the, the, it's a complicated question, as always, with questions of race. And uh, there is no doubt if you go back to the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, uh, you know, whether it was uh, conscious or unconscious bias. I mean, I'm always hesitant to, 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 to paint. Yeah, I always feel it's important to paint uh you know with a you know be careful with the things that you say because as always there's going to be a wide array of thoughts people that had thoughts you know some people were open-minded some people were not uh if you go back to any point of time you know in the nfl so uh were there just out and out racists that, did, that didn't want black players on teams yes were there people that maybe got into the sport uh, from a, a scout or a general manager or a coach or whatever, and were told, listen, this is just something that doesn't happen, and they didn't want to push back against it. They, you know, said, okay, well, fine. You know, that's so there's many different sort of levels uh, you find of of uh, sort of the, the ideology, the feel, you know, the adherence uh, to this ideology that was setting back black quarterbacks. But yes, I mean, there, there would be no doubt any any. I mean, even when black players, when the NFL reintegrated after World War Two in the 1950s uh, and they did allow black players back into the league, there were all sorts of practices that today would I mean, you know, they made sure that black players only played at certain positions, uh, the positions that supposedly didn't involve as much thinking wide receiver. You know, they wanted to let their athletic skills more than their minds take over. If they're fast, wide receiver, defensive back, something like that. So uh, th there was that. They they also uh, teams would make sure there was a there was a practice known as stacking, which was if they you could have three or four black players on your team, but do you if you had fifteen in training camp, prime for those positions, you made sure they all played the same position, same three or four positions. So you would not end up with fifteen black players on your team. So uh, there were all sorts of practices that were just flat out racist. And uh, there, there is no doubt that there was in, it is the definition of institutional racism. Now, of course, it changes very much as you get into the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. Uh, the, the, the league by that point, uh, the racial, the, you know, the hiring practices had changed. The league itself was 50 percent black, the playing population, maybe even more. So there was no problem with with bringing in black players anymore. 
uh, and that was great. Uh, the, uh, the level, the window of opportunity, it opened wide. But still, those thoughts of can they play quarterback? Can they play offensive center? Another position where you have to call signals or middle linebacker. Yeah. That was that that curve moved much slower uh, than it did at other positions. So uh, there were still uh, things going on that you know made it quite clear that there were doubts about black athletes. So uh, even though, uh, the, as I said, it's baked in and, and that, that slowly uh, melted, you know, way, it melted away, there was still stuff, uh, still thought processes uh, in existence. And, uh, you know, even to this day, there's a, there's a, there's a few things uh, that, that you can see. And the hiring practices of coaches, general managers, decision makers, and of course, the ownership ranks are almost all white still, virtually all white. So. Uh, it is, it is an, uh, as one, as several of my interview subjects for this book said, the NFL is still an old boys club, a white man's old boys club. And, uh, you know, so th that's still in existence today. Okay. So uh, in, in your opinion, and in that of a lot of the players whom you've interviewed, uh, the feeling is that there still is that racial quality. So maybe it hasn't quite been unbaked out of the league entirely. Well, yes, the, at, I'm talking more specifically at this point about the quarterback position. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And there is no doubt. I mean, in uh, in uh, not 2017, I believe the year was, a couple of things happened. Number one, the New York Giants started a black player at quarterback for the first time. Okay, they had never started a black player at quarterback. They've been in existence since 1925. And that was finally allowed the NFL to say that every team in our league has started a black player at quarterback. Uh, so that's how long it took. And another thing that happened was uh, the uh, Chicago Bears uh, tr needed a quarterback and they traded up for the second pick in the draft. And Patrick Mahomes is available and Sean Watson is available and they took Mitch Trubisky. Okay, who had started one year of college football, and he was the prototype of what uh, the NFL had been looking at for years for quarterbacks. Tall, white, big arm, projected well. And so Patrick Mahomes was not even the first quarterback drafted in his year. And so Doug Williams, who I interviewed, who was the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, he works for the then Redskins, now Commanders. He was He's sitting in the draft room, and he goes, that tells you all you need to know right there that a team could have that thinking uh, almost at the hundredth year of the NFL that that a player so talented as Mahomes would go after a player it's because that old ideology was still in place whether it be unconscious or conscious something was in there what we want at quarterback is this and uh you know it, it didn't there were the, the the talents of the black athlete were 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 you know were were diminished in as far as people looking at them. So, yes, it, it's still an, it still is in existence in some respects. Uh, perhaps it's a consequence of my um, inveterate naivete. But could that move not just be attributed to, I don't know, an ineffable quality that they saw in this player, whether yeah. it were in, you know, like I, I hate to attribute to malice, you know, malice to what may have just been a, a misselection, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a wrongful um, examination and assessment of a player's ability, and 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 they, I'm sure, they're kicking themselves, uh, and 
I would think that the management of the Bears, hopefully, had no racial animus against either Mahomes or I think there was a Watson, the Deshaun Watson. Um, of course, I can't know that with any certainty. I'm just, I try to hesitate before thinking ill of that franchise for having made what was maybe in retrospect a boneheaded move. But, you know, sometimes you, you hit on a quarterback, black or white, and it, it just happens and it's magical. Many times it is just the opposite. <laughs> and there are examples of quarterbacks, both black and white, who have utterly fallen apart and failed, you know, Jamarcus Russell. You know? So there are other examples on either side. Um, so should we hesitate before passing judgment on a franchise for making a move like that uh, or, or maybe jump to it the way that uh, Williams did? Uh, I would... I he was not necessarily ascribing malice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I agree with you. Uh, you, you know, very, I mean, I've written this book, I've done lots of media and I tell everybody, I'm, you know, very cautious to ascribe uh, thoughts like that to, to anyone. You have to be very careful and no, I'm not, I'm not ascribing malice to the bears. I think they, if they want to win, they made a judgment and uh, it, it just happened to be the wrong judgment. In hindsight, you look at the racial aspect of it. Uh, what what Doug was saying was that it just shows it just shows where what the thought process was in existence for so long. It was a vestige. It was a vestige of the old thought process. Was look at the potential of the white quarterback, and uh, you know it's just it's what they wanted, you know, and and so it just it was the old school. It was the old school, and that's. That's that's what. But I'll tell you what I found towards the end of my research in this book was uh, for this book was a historian in Chicago uh, who uh, is a huge Bears fan and has written a lot about the, the Bears, uh, you know, from a it's, a it's a young guy, Jack Silverstein, an outstanding writer and researcher. And I came across his work because in the in the aftermath of the Bears decision to do that, as a as an open-minded Bears fan, he looked in the mirror and said, "Is my team racist? I don't know. I don't know, but I want to find out." So he went back and he quantified, going back to 1953, every black quarterback who had started for any team over you know the decades. And let's look at the numbers. Let's look at the data and find out which teams have done this and which teams haven't. And so it led him down a, a rabbit hole, a, a very, and his research is phenomenal. And it, it turned out the Bears did not have a lot of black starters at quarterback. I mean, they've since, as he was publishing, they drafted a black quarterback in the first round, Justin Fields. So it sort of, it, you know, answered his question. Moving forward, they were definitely open-minded, but that led him to at least ask the question. And I, I think that's the best way to approach it. But I was really appreciative of his data. And let me tell you, I put it in my book because it was outstanding. Yeah, and I noted it. Uh, an open-minded Bears fan sounds a little bit like a contradiction in terms, but I'll accept it <laughs> for now. I, and I don't know how I don't know how pleased they are now with uh, Justin Fields, not because of his the right. color of his skin, but that's maybe a different story. Uh, I, I wonder if the the preference, let's say, for that traditional tall, you know, white quarterback with the chiseled chin and all the features and the blonde hair and, you know, like your Joe Burrow kind of <laughs> prototype. I wonder if that preference isn't due in some part, not as much to um, his, 
acumen on the field, but maybe to his viability as a commercial product. Uh, because of course, today in this age, the two are so um, so tightly interwoven, like your stars of the league will be on your Allstate commercials and your Visa commercials and all the billboards and, you know, et cetera. Uh, so do you think that goes into the thinking as well? Like a, a franchise is looking at a figure who is not only going to perform on the field, but is also marketable to a, the American uh, public? No, no doubt. And, and, and actually, I get into this in the book. Uh, I interviewed Lee Steinberg, the agent who uh, represented Warren Moon uh, 40 years ago and then represented Patrick Mahomes all these years later. And what a difference, you know, Warren Moon, who's in the Hall of Fame, did not even get drafted. And then Patrick Mahomes, who's headed to the Hall of Fame, in my opinion, uh, you know, is uh, it's a whole different uh, set of circumstances that he's encountered. But what Lee said was the fact that now when you turn on a game on Sunday and you're watching and Mahomes is doing all those State Farm ads and head and shoulders and left, you can't, you, you, you know, hardly a 20 minutes pass without some commercial of him. That's just as important or as significant, let's put it that way, as him winning Super Bowls because it has not happened enough, uh, you know, to see the, the, the black quarterback become the pitch man and the face because what, what was part of the calculus for many years for black quarterbacks not getting on the field was that yes, the, 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 the quarterback position was so important that you're the face of the franchise, quote unquote, I put that in air quotes, face of the franchise. And so owners were hesitant. Uh, I think, uh, you know, was this from race or was it from a business perspective? I can't answer that. As I, as all, as I said before, there's always a range of answers. Uh, but, you know, they were uncomfortable. What the, Lee's comment to me was, you know, the owner wants somebody, the face of their franchise, to be someone they're comfortable with, someone that they could take to the country club or take to the, you know, take to their boat, you know, and go out for a day. And so, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, the subtle, the, the, the racial aspect of that creeps in very obviously. Yeah. And, and so that that was in play. So uh, only in the last really, I mean, you started to see really since the turn of the century we're in now, did you see teams willing to do that at all more than it was just a sprinkling before that. So uh, things have changed dramatically there. And honestly, I think in the last few years, they've changed completely. You're, you're seeing teams that are, uh, you know, a number any team seems they're willing to take quarterbacks now, regardless of the color of their skin, which is great. But it was very much the marketability of it and the glamour of the position and the ownership's comfortable, uh, you know, how comfortable they'd be with it. That was all very much in play. There's no doubt about it. And there's also the sort of unquantifiable uh, aspect of a, a player's charisma. I remember back in the day, back in the day, it wasn't that long ago, but uh, Donovan McNabb was, you know, the star of the Philadelphia Eagles with Andy Reid, and he was also like the, the the face of the Chunky Soup commercials, the Campbell's Chunky Soup commercials. I think with his mother. So again, uh, you know, there's also a certain affability that needs to be there as well. For yes, really to achieve that status of hyper marketability, but also exquisite um, sportsmanship on the field, skillfulness. And I think today it's obvious that Patrick Mahomes sort of checks all those boxes. So he's that kind of, well, for many reasons, that sort of once in a generation type figure who's able to achieve that 
maybe on, on the, the white side, <laughs> I hate to say that, but like a Peyton Manning had that too. Very commercially viable, excellent football player on the field. And even better commentator now that we see him on uh, Monday Night Football with, uh, with Eli. Um, let me just go through some statistics. Uh, seven of the top 10 highest paid players in the NFL are black. Five of the top 10 best-selling jerseys belong to black players. 56% of players in the NFL are black. And 42 of the league's 32 starting quarterbacks are black. Uh, to me, this looks like progress. And this is to someone who really was almost oblivious of the racial component in football. And that might be a sort of a side conversation to have. The fact that uh, as a man, 31 years of age, it never really dawned on me that this was even a problem, although it's sort of coming to the surface again in 2023. Um, so what do you think of these numbers? Are, I mean, are they promising? Are they specious? Is there something underneath them that's perhaps um, hollow? Uh, very little. There, there's a little bit of hollowness. They, they are, to answer your question, it is promising. And the, the real change, I mean, the, 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 the over 50% of the entire population has been in, a, in, in effect for a long time. So that's actually not even new news. That, that, that's the way it's been for a long time. Uh, the open-mindedness uh, of teams uh, from, uh, you know, from almost every position. It's been the case since maybe the 70s, the 80s. You know, you just started seeing a lot more of that. It's the, the quarterback position is, has lagged way behind. And so that's, that's where when you start suddenly seeing, I believe it was 14 of 32 teams started a black quarterback the first opening game this year. And it was so important that the league put out a press release about it. So uh, that's where there's change. And uh, where the real, uh, the change, where, where the, the biggest front, uh, if you want to call it that, and that's sort of the war on equality and in pro football right now has moved to the coaching ranks, general managers, uh, people running teams, the decision makers, all right, off the field is definitely where the situation now needs work. I mean, I believe there are three coaches of uh, black coaches or coaches of color this year. That's certainly not enough. And uh, the general manager situation is starting to people that shape the rosters right? It's starting to improve team presidents starting to improve better than it was uh, five years ago, even. But that's where you need to see more people of color. Uh, and so that that is still very much a work in progress. I'm not sure the league knows what to do about it. I don't think the sport knows what to do about it. They have protocols in place, a mandatory interview process, the Rooney rule. Uh, to make sure that minority candidates are interviewed. It doesn't seem to work. Uh, so I don't know what they're going to do about that. But uh, th that's very much, the Washington Post did a large series on this issue. And it's a worthwhile topic. And uh, that is where there's real uh, challenges still ahead for, for football is, is, is how to make uh, their, those ranks more diverse. Right. So that's the next frontier. Uh, in this battle to to reach some form of equality or at least parity. Tell us, though, sort of in concrete terms, what would that parity or that proportionality look like? 13% of Americans are, are black by the latest statistics. Of course, they are overrepresented in the NFL, in the NBA, uh, you know, underrepresented in, in the NHL or in golf. So I, I don't uh, mean to say that with any sort of judgment. It just is the statistical truth. So 
what percentage of black coaches would be acceptable to you know the sport and to the media and to the american viewing public i don't know that uh, i can identify a number i just know when i see a sport that uh, uh you know the six out of every 10 players are black and you know one of every 10 coaches are black it just doesn't it's just not right uh there needs to be uh, there are there are there's something in place there in that process that is that is wrong and, and honestly uh, i think it is an old vestige of what the quarterbacks dealt with and that is you know are they smart enough will they work hard enough the same questions and uh so the, the i think the black coaches it's a story of opportunity mm. and uh, the black coaches have have lagged behind as a result of that and uh, you know opportunities are needed so i would say i mean i can't put a number on it i wouldn't mm. know but certainly it's an inequality right now mm. and uh, i don't know that the, the the playing population the black playing population will rise that much more. It's It's been where it is for a while. Seems to be, uh, you know, six out of 10 roughly uh, in the NFL. Uh, but the, certainly the coaches, uh, you know, three of 32 is not enough. So, you know, it would be, it would be nice to see a third of the league. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's, let's see, let's give a minimum. Let's, let's, let's give black coaches a chance and, and see what happens. I'm glad that you could return to me a, a number. And again, I don't expect you to be shaping league policy, uh, but it does seem to be the case that the league is is uh, aspiring to some sort of unidentified goal. And I'm just curious to know, you know, roughly what would be acceptable. So thank you for that. Uh, I wonder, do you think the phenomenon of Dion Sanders as the, the new celebrated coach of the Colorado Buffaloes? will be something of a lightning rod that increases hiring for uh, black coaches, both in the collegiate and the professional ranks, if he's to have some success out there in Boulder? I hope so. Uh, yes, I, I, I think the Dion uh, story is really interesting. And, 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 and what's interesting about it is he's in the college game uh, where the, the coaches that rule the sport of college football, I mean, it's a, a lot of familiar figures and it's definitely been, you know, white coaches and uh, college football is changing as all college sports are changing dramatically with the NIL money and with the transfer portal. And a coach now is going to have to deal with uh, a number of issues that coaches weren't dealing with five years ago, and you're going to deal with young black athletes or white athletes as well. But, uh, you know, how things are shaped and you're going to have to have charisma. You're going to have to deal with young players. It's mm -hmm. it's almost a whole nother skill set. Right, right. And, you know, Dion coming out of the, you know, with a with a coming out of the pro ranks with a lot of star quality. It's just a fascinating guy to throw into the middle of this situation. And, you know, he may be the prototype of what you're going to need to navigate all this uh, going forward. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but, you know, he's the first one into the pool sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. let's yeah. see how this goes. Uh, you know, I'm all for it. 
you know, I think that is certain like pro football, college football is a sport where we, I need to see more diversity on the sidelines, the major colleges. Uh, and so I think it's great. And uh, he might be leading the way with something. And, uh, you know, I would also fully expect to see him in the NFL coaching within five years. Oh, wow. That's an interesting prediction. I would say I would disagree with you. I would say that he is not prototypical. He's very much inimitable. I don't know if anyone can really capture the well, you may be right. Yes. Neon Dion essence. I think people can try. Uh, yeah. But that's that's a totally yeah, he's one of one. You're right. Totally unique character. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, by whom I'm engrossed. I think he's fascinating, controversial, but I like him for that reason. Um, and you mentioned the transfer portal, which opened up, what, yesterday, two days ago. And uh, you're right. It's an absolutely new world of college football and a very exciting and intriguing one. And uh, in a way, I'm a little nostalgic for the, the ways of old, but I think this is an improvement. It's certainly an experiment, and I'd like to see in which direction it goes, um, but definitely something to, to keep our eyes on. Uh, let, let me change directions just a little bit again. And I want to ask about biracial quarterbacks specifically. So more than a few of the league's most celebrated quarterbacks are biracial. Patrick Mahomes, Dak Prescott, Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, Bryce Young, and, and even Colin Kaepernick, whom uh, we can include, I think, in this list as having been a, a recent player in the league. Now, I wonder, have you received any objection to categorizing the foregoing quarterbacks and men as black rather than biracial? Is it a distinction without a difference uh, or something worthy of pointing out? Well, it's an interesting question. I have received some pushback. And my, my attitude was, how do they identify? How do they identify themselves? Uh, you know, I, it was not my intent to get into an argument with anyone about, you know, who's black or who's not. I mean, I, I found the whole thing slightly off-putting, to be honest with you. If, if Patrick Mahomes uh, considers himself a black quarterback, well, then, uh, you know, he is. Uh, he's, he, he's, you know, his father's black, his mother's white. And is he a white quarterback? No, he's biracial. Uh, he's not a white quarterback. It's a splitting hairs that I, I just really had didn't want to get into, uh, you know, uh, and, and I would say this did, uh, you know, a lot of the people, uh, you know, we have a former president of the United States who's biracial and, uh, you know, a lot of people were very supportive of him and there were a lot of people that didn't like him. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering how those people that didn't like him, how did they see him? How did they see President Obama? Okay. And so uh, I think it's a, it's a question that, that I have asked a little bit, and it seems to sort of end the conversation. Yeah, and I should note it's not something in which I'm particularly interested. As I said, I just want excellent sportsmanship, excellent skill to be displayed on the field. For me, it's really a, a secondary or tertiary concern. Uh, the yep. amount of melanin contained in his skin. And I hope that many people in my generation kind of feel the same way. Uh, but I did feel obligated to ask you that question. Although, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Although it's, again, one that makes me a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> just having posed it. Uh, I want to use the last name listed uh, to prompt our next topic of conversation, and that is Colin Kaepernick. Uh, now, he's a former player toward whom as much vitriol as praise has been directed. In your opinion, how will he be remembered? I'm assuming most of you listening have an idea or can remember the controversy that 
surrounded him and persists in surrounding him um, since his demonstrations on the sideline and you know, the Netflix series and everything that's gone along with him, the Nike deal, these types of things. Um, so is his legacy you know, awakening the consciousness of our nation to ongoing racial injustice, or will his impudence and his ingratitude be foremost in people's minds when they reflect upon his name? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think it is what what point of view are you bringing to that question? I think it's where the answer is. Uh, you know, my you know, I, I certainly one thing that can be said is uh, his legacy will will be what he did. You know, beyond the football field, uh, there is no doubt. I mean, he took a stand. He took a stand that he felt was important, uh, and he it cost him his career, and uh, and so. He was willing to take that stand, and uh, you know whatever the the whatever the repercussions may be, <clears throat> I have admiration for him for that. And you know, did he? And and I think uh, you know he's he's an amazing figure. I mean, bo entire books have been written about him, Netflix series, all sorts of things. Fascinating figure to watch. In my book, I do. Uh, I mean, I you know I wasn't going to write an entire book about him, but I wanted him. You can't tell the story without him. Uh, I, I have, uh, uh, he is sort of framed, what will be forgotten is what he was as a football player, mm. as a young football player, and part of this uh, uh, black quarterback story, and what made his his later stance so powerful was that he came into the NFL and was just a, a shooting star, an incredible talent. Uh, that is forgotten in this story. He almost won a Super Bowl as a second-year player. I will tell you, uh, many years of watching football, when I watched Colin Kaepernick as a young quarterback for the 49ers, and he was playing so well, I thought, I may never have seen a better, more effective quarterback than this young man. He was unbelievable, okay? And uh, it slowly waned. Uh, the, there was a coaching change. And I did. I interviewed the offensive coordinator that basically set him loose as a, as a young player. And Greg Roman. Roman, yeah. And he wound up, He his stories were incredible. He said, you know, and then none of this is, people don't even know this about Kaepernick. It's just a super, super sharp young guy. Uh, he had taught Andrew, he had coached Andrew Luck at Stanford. Uh, another, a, a guy, again, a white quarterback renowned for his mind. You know, he said Colin was right there with him in terms of what I could teach him and what he could do on the field and change plays at the line of scrimmage and all sorts of stuff. And so Kaepernick, uh, is was uh, just a phenomenal talent, and uh, you know his career was what he, what could he have done uh, after I believe it was his fifth year or sixth year that he took a stand and then never played again. Uh, it's a shame because uh, he ha he had a, a big platform uh, as a player and he could have had a great career. I'm sure in the long run he's fine with what happened. Uh, I'm sure he feels like he missed something. But uh, the stand he took will 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 be remembered long after you know the the careers of some of the quarterbacks he played against. So I'd say he did something bigger uh, than football. And uh, you know my own two cents. You know my hat's off to him. He he I, I thought he he really took a stand. It was misinterpreted at the time. Uh, you know it became a a, 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 hot, a flashpoint in society. Uh, you know, the, and never understood that most people never understood that all he was calling attention to was he felt that 
you know, the police treatment of, of uh, you know, black uh, citizens uh, was, was needed work, needed a lot of work. And he was upset about it. And that's all it was. It wasn't unpatriotic. It wasn't any of that. It had nothing to do with the military. However, it became cast as that. And so, uh, you know, he, he, he pressed on through that. He ultimately got basically an apology from the NFL. And so, uh, you know, my head is off to him. I know a lot of people don't agree with me on that. And a lot of people do. But that, that's where I come down on it. Yeah. And I thank you for your frankness and for explaining exactly what happened and, and how you uh, render your verdict on it. You're right. He did settle with the NFL for, as you note, for an undisclosed amount of money. I, I, one can only wonder exactly how much that was. Uh, but you're right. He's certainly gone on to, one might say, greener pastures, or greener turf, <laughs> what you will, between Nike and Netflix and other series that he's done in his settlement. Um, he's certainly not hurting for for income. So. No. And, and of course, he is effectuating in his own way change, right? I'm sure that he's still politically engaged in, in working toward the causes that he holds dear. Uh, we're kind of winding down a little bit. I want to be respectful of your time. I do want to bring up one thing, though, that I completely overlooked when it happened. That's the, the Kyler Murray homework clause that, that you uh, briefly note at the end of the book. Uh, so when he was, I guess, renegotiating, renegotiating his salary, which ultimately wound up being $230 million, <laughs> like, you know, close to a quarter of a billion dollars. Uh, there was a clause put into this contract that stipulated he must uh, watch a total of four hours of film a week, undistracted by any sorts of, uh, um, what is that game? Angry Birds or any, you know, any other sort of app. On video games. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, video games are on his iPad. Uh, I was... I was kind of struck by this. Initially, I read that. And again, being, uh, I guess, post-racial in my thinking, I thought, well, that's pretty reasonable for, <laughs> for, for that amount of money. <laughs> Four hours isn't that much. And uh, uh, so it, it took your explanation of the, of the scenario and a little deeper pondering to, to realize how um, maybe inappropriate that clause was or a little bit embarrassing. Um, you know, I think that because he's an asset in which you're investing a ton of money, it, it might not be unusual for these sorts of conditions to be written into contracts. I also don't know how NFL contracts are written. Uh, maybe that's common practice, maybe not. But I didn't immediately ascribe that to any doubt about his mental acuity or his commitment to work, his industriousness, um, because he's black. Um, so maybe you can just kind of comment. I don't really have a question in there, but I, I just wanted to raise that because I found it interesting. And immediately I didn't detect anything racially motivated in that. To me, it's just an organization trying to ensure that it's extremely valuable asset is committing some time to, you know, f f uh, game tape and study. Again, like I said, he, I'm sure he's committing many, many, many more hours to that. Uh, but take that and, and just sort of clarify what I was unable to, to make uh, clear. Well, you're certainly right that, you know, you're investing a quarter of a billion dollars. Uh, you know, you, you, you hope to be able to set your terms of, of engagement and employment and, and all that. It's certainly true. Uh, but what happened, 
guys like the, the were raised a flag someone like Warren Moon all right who who uh, year years after he played is still sort of a keeper of the flame and and and, and dealt with uh, years and years of being treated differently as a as an athlete because he was black all right and you know we could go through chapter and verse with him uh, as a black quarterback treated differently and this is a successful black quarterback but uh, he is uh, well aware of the history and lived it. And this is a situation that he just jumped up immediately and he says, wait a minute, he said. And his point would be, uh, and I'm putting words in his mouth here, which I'm hesitant to do, but his words with mouth, is, would you write that into that clause into a, into a white quarterback's contract? Would you do it? And if so, let me see it. Has that been done? And so nobody raised their hand, you know, that was his point. This is an example of a black quarterback being treated differently because he's black. And, you know, whether or not that's where the Cardinals were coming from. And, uh, you know, it does definitely get into uh, the questions of conscious or unconscious bias, uh, you know, uh, which, you know, uh, I, I can't ascribe what they're, what were in the organizational meetings where that happened, I wasn't there, but that was the end result. And so that's why people raised their hands and said, "Uh Oh, you know, should, is this right? You know, if all quarterbacks, if all quarterbacks have that in their, in their clause, fine. Okay. That's not a problem, but is, is this an example of a black quarterback being singled out? And so, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, the Cardinals backed down very quickly. They didn't yeah. like the pushback. And so, it, you know, it is what it is. But that's why there was uh, a bit of a burn. If it is asymmetrical treatment. This is an example of a black quarterback being treated differently. because <laughs> We can cut that. That's okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Uh, if that is an example of asymmetrical treatment, then I think that's reprehensible. But uh, as a just a lay person who has a salary nowhere near that. I, you know, I was just reading and thinking, well, you know, that's pretty reasonable. <laughs> Four hours. Yeah, yeah, so as always, with that's, half, that's half a work day. You know, that I could do that before noon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted, I want to pivot one more time in our remaining minutes. I want you to take us back to your upbringing in Texas. We'll get a little biographical here. Uh, you were a voracious reader upon whom the literary gods bestowed the gift of writing. Uh, you worked in an independent bookstore of which your mother was the co-owner. Uh, you were in a state famous for its professional collegiate and high school sports teams. Uh, tell us more about your life as a child and young man, and how were you able to turn your passion into your profession? Well, yes. No, you 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 have hit it there. I did. I grew up in Dallas uh, in the 1950s and the 60s uh, in a household where there were a lot of books. And I grew up reading. I mean, there were two newspapers thrown. I mean, this, you know, it all it, 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 it sounds like ancient history. You know, there was a morning paper thrown and then there was an afternoon paper thrown. And so it, it was a, a time gone by. That's for sure. So I was a reader. And uh, I was a sports-loving kid. The Dallas Cowboys came to town uh, when I was four years old. I've written two books about the early days of the Cowboys. One of them is sort of how my childhood, I grew up and they grew up. This is long before they became America's team. 
and, you know, lived through the Kennedy assassination in Dallas and, uh, you know, a very segregated city that I grew up that I was sort of unaware of as a little kid. And so I wrote about that. And yeah, I mean, I just consider myself, I, I was drawn to, I loved reading the sports pages when I was young. Uh, I went to the games. We went to the games, the Cowboy games. And I love getting up the next morning and reading the paper and seeing the pictures and the articles. And it just, it, it was as exciting as it was to go to the games. It was exciting to read about it again. So when I would go outside and play a little imaginary game, whatever it may be when you're eight or nine, I would come in and type up a game story. You know, hard to believe uh, looking back, but true. So I did that. And then years later, I'm in high school. I, I like you know, a lot of kids, I worked for the school paper and uh, I enjoyed uh, writing. Uh, I bought now looking back. Now I tell people there's really two, you can almost break the society down to, to two different categories. And that is the people who look at a blank screen or a blank page and say, Oh my God, how am I ever going to fill that with words? And then there's the, the other categories, the ones that say, okay, let's get going. And so I was one of those, okay, let's get going. Kids, the, the blank page at that time now screen did not frighten me. And then I went off to college and uh, uh, was an English major. And I worked for the school paper at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was a real informative process for me or experience for me. It was a great school paper. Almost all my colleagues went on to journalism careers. They didn't even have a journalism major at Penn. It was you know, liberal arts. But so it was just always there and it came naturally to me. And uh, it uh, I consider myself fortunate. Uh, you know, I, it, it, it gave me an entree into the newspaper business. What I feel was the golden era of the newspapers and sports writing. I went around the world, around the country covering sports events. And that was just a fantastic opportunity uh, to, to see the world, which I did. And so, uh, but it was, so some good timing there uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, a lot of hard work, I'm not gonna lie, but uh, it was it was sports, it was fun and it was interesting and people liked it. You know, they would agree or disagree with you. And I never minded that uh, push and pull. And so it was, uh, I consider myself uh, very fortunate to have, uh, been, you know, had the sort of the career arc that I did. And do you have very fond memories of working in that independent bookstore with your mother? And are you ever saddened by the fact that many young people growing up in this age might go an entire lifetime without stepping foot in a brick and mortar bookstore? Absolutely. I am sad about it. And, you know, I was definitely informed. Uh, I, I am a creature of bookstores still. I'm glad I'm heartened to see that, uh, uh, they've made a somewhat of a comeback, uh, certainly in the community where I live in Baltimore. I can now drive to three or four independent bookstores within 20 minutes of my house. And I don't know whether that's happening in other communities. It is in mine. And I certainly support them. And uh, I think they're great places. And I'm, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, I think they're just uh, wonderful for communities and of course, it's changed what a bookstore wants. I mean, sometimes they have to give you coffee now or, you know, a place to sit and read or maybe even write, uh, but uh, which is cool. So they're being reinvented uh, like a lot of things. But uh, I'm I'm a believer in them 
And uh, I certainly hope the day comes where we don't, you know, the day does not come where we don't have them anymore. Uh, because I think that would be just just terribly sad. Yeah, I think in some parts of the country they are experiencing a happy renaissance, but I don't think that's uh, pervasive at this point. So, so I hope uh, earnestly that that more independent bookstores can rise up and establish themselves as fixtures in communities across the nation. My last question for you is, how do you instill a love of reading in, in a child or in a young adult? Boy, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I'm now a grandparent. All right. And, and I can, I can tell you, uh, you know, you can sort of see from early going, uh, whether or not, uh, I have, uh, you know, a grandson who from, from the beginning has just enjoyed being really young, being joy, enjoyed the experience of sitting there, having a book read to him. I, I, I so I, 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 I don't, I don't know what you, uh, attribute that to other than the fact that that's how he was born. Uh, and so he has enjoyed it because I know there are, that's not the case for, for many kids. And I mean, it is the case for some, not for others. Who knows why I have a hard time saying that certainly, uh, being read to, I think is, is a great thing when you're young. Uh, uh, I think modeling, I mean, I grew up, I, it happened to me because books were all around me when I was growing up, just all around me. And so that's, that's good fortune. That's what that is. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to attribute that to anything other than good fortune growing up in a house where, where that was the case. But uh, as much as you can, as a parent or a grandparent or wherever, uh, explain to your child that, uh, you know, or, or show your child or read to your child or just tell you how important it is and how many great things can come from reading, uh, you know, just stress it over and over. And uh, you just hope that it, uh, like any summer, any experience, it takes, it grabs hold of somebody and uh, off you go. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's something you have to work at, I think. I mean, it's there, it's still there for you. It's a wonderful habit and it's a habit that you have to learn exists and you have to learn that uh, the byproducts are positive. So uh, try to put it out there as much as you can for young people and, and hope for the best. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I think there's no greater enrichment than to have a, a world filled with, with books at your disposal. Uh, so John, I am just immensely grateful to you for having joined me and, and discussed this wonderful book of yours. Um, in closing, maybe you can tell us all where we can find the book, where we can get into contact with you uh, and any other notes or ideas or advice with which you'd uh, like to send us away. Well, certainly, I, I do have a website, uh, uh, www.johneisenberg.com. It's got a it's got a, uh, a a link on it there where you can contact me. Uh, always happy to hear from readers, good or bad, and I certainly do. So uh, you know that's great. Uh, I'm also, I mean, I'm on Twitter uh, at bmoreisenberg, and I'm on LinkedIn, and you know it's easy to get a hold of me. So uh, that, you know, that is fine. As far as where to buy the book, having just given you my rant about local bookstores, I, I would certainly encourage you to go into your store. I mean, this is this book is a, it's a major publisher, basic books out of New York. And so the distribution is good. If it's not in the store, they can get it. Uh, that's not difficult for them to do. Uh, you know, it's one of the 
one of the beauties of, uh, again, good fortune, having a nice publisher behind you, distribution is excellent. Uh, I know it's on Amazon as well, barnesandnoble.com, a lot of the independent uh, collective uh, online stores. It's, you can get it anywhere. And so, uh, you know, uh, shop local, that's great. But uh, most importantly, just shop, you know, uh, you know, get the book and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear from people about it. And I would just add the way in which I think this book is best read is to, you know, read the section about the specific quarterback and then put the book down, pick up your computer or your iPhone or what have you, and watch a couple of highlight reels of these quarterbacks. Very good. To, to me, that was infinitely enjoyable to, to go back and watch Randall Cunningham, for instance, after kind of being reminded of his excellence by your book and then watching him again is really a fun way to, to approach this book. So, John, again, I thank you so very much. Uh, on that note, I think we've reached the conclusion of this episode. Remember, my fellow voyagers, it's not farewell. Not only farewell, but fair forward. I'm Daniel Finneran. This is Finneran's Wake. Thank you, and so long.